You're now listening to Sanity at the Movies, Disney Princess Edition. My name is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. We've got Pastor Jacob Menzel over there. Hey. And a very special treat joining us, our very own Beast, or perhaps our very own LeFou, or perhaps our very own, what's that candle guy's name? Uh, Lumiere. Lumiere or Cogsworth. I don't know. What character do you think you are? Uh, I might be beast. Lumiere, at least from the animated version, not from the new version. Nah, but, uh, we don't acknowledge that new version. Nah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Sounds okay. You want to be Lumiere? Sure. You can be whatever you want. You got first pick. All right. I think probably Lumiere is better than Cogsworth. Yeah, I would say that that's true. Yeah. Jake, what character do you want to be? Uh, I don't care. The Beast has got a fangs. The Beast sharp is pretty ones. awesome, yeah. actually. I always thought that Ben should be Chip, but... Chip McGregory? No. That Chip! Is, that, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that guy is weird. Yeah. Guys, let's talk about it. Let's talk about 1992's Beauty and the Beast. Mm. A movie based on a fairy tale created to propagate the idea that when a, a man is abusive to a woman and, and locks her up and mistreats her, yells at her, she will, doesn't let her eat. She will, in fact, eventually fall in love with him. She, she will, and she should fall in love with him because there is a prince inside every man 90, like that. 91. 91. You're right, Ben. 91. I don't know why I said 92. Well, that changes things. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, I feel like I have a handle on 92's movies better than 91's. Just I letting, don't have a handle. Letting on. people behind the curtain here. I said, can you, I, I asked these guys before we hit record, can you name the other movies, the two movies that made more money this year? I'll give you, I'll give you a hint. One of them is a stone cold action classic. And one of them is a action-y kind of movie that a lot of people remember fondly, but it's a total piece of crap. Would that be Boondock Saints, that second thing? No, Boondock Saints would have been well after this, or at least a few years. Okay. A lot of people, including some of the people in this room, perhaps, remember this second thing very fondly, based on some fun parts and one partic- one performance in particular. Certain lines have kind of entered the vernacular of our generation. I think not the generation after and not the generation before, but our generation. An action movie? Well, it's action, kind of a historical action movie. From 1991? From 1991, yes, sir. Historical action movie from 1991. I mean, it's got action. I don't know whether you'd really call it an action movie. It's got plenty of daring do. Is it Rob Roy or something? The the first syllable was right. 1991? The first syllable. I don't. Was, I, knew, I cannot remember when. It is. Robin Hood, oh, Prince of Thieves. That thing. A total piece of crap remembered fondly, probably by all three people in this room. Yeah. I saw it one time it and it was late. And so I don't you have. You don't remember that? Yeah, I, it was kind of fun. That's all I remember. Alan Rickman's fun. What mm. man of name is Azim? Irish? Kunish? Moorish. Moorish. Cut your out with a spoon. Why a spoon, cousin? Because it hurts more, you twit. Yep. All those wow. great moments. The other movie? And cancel Christmas. <laughs> Stone Cold Action Classic. It's a sequel. It introduced CGI to the mainstream. It's not Jurassic Park. Toy Story. Oh, CGI to the mainstream. Had some pretty primitive by today's standards, but very cool. I loved this movie when I was a kid. Hmm. Stars the- an Austrian actor. <laughs> Terminator 2? Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Wow, that was 91. That was 91, yeah. Weird. CGI was just becoming a mainstream thing, as you can see in Beauty and the Beast and a couple pretty famous sequences where they're like, hey, we've got CGI. Look at what we can do. The camera can spin around Belle and the Beast while they dance in this place in something approximating 3D space. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. And it was cool. It was cool. But also, if you look too hard at it now, it has the feeling of those 
virtual reality simulation things where you see the grid and you see like the little balls bouncing on the grid and Mm -hmm. you know like those old cgi this is what cgi looks like kind of we can go the way that people thought of like this is what it would look like inside a computer man and it'd be a grid and extended (laughs) into the distance like tron like tron or a little bit like neuromancer or one of those things now beauty and the beast 1991's beauty and the beast what feelings did you guys bring to this princess movie? What feelings did I bring to it? Yeah, were you expecting to like it? Do you like usually like this one? Is it one that you remember fondly from your childhood? What's the uh, what it, baggage do you bring, I guess, is what I'm asking to Beauty and the Beast? Well, it was not one of my childhood favorites because Aladdin was awesome. And Aladdin came out like the following year and Aladdin was for boys. And then The Lion King came out and I was a little old at that time, but it was still more for boys or boys and girls. And so those are the two that were the big ones for me. Beauty and the Beast was still a girl story and it had some cool stuff in it and was fun and whatever, but no self-respecting boy actually liked or admitted liking or let himself like Beauty and the Beast is kind of the feeling that I have. If I'm talking about what would I bring to it from being a kid, I knew I would like it. I knew I'd have fun with it. I knew I'd also have fun just sort of laughing at how dumb the plot is, like what you said before, like the idea of Belle dancing through this town talking about how stupid and boring everybody <laughs> and their poor provincial lives were. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I will say, <clears throat> and we'll get your baggage in a minute, Ben and mine, I will say I expected that aspect to be more strikingly annoying than it was. I think coming out on the heels of the of Little Mermaid, I was kind of prepping myself for, oh boy, the the politics of this down. thing are going to be obnoxious. And it did have that kind of, I am not a prize to be won, early 90s feminism <laughs> going for it. But it wasn't really as bad as I thought it was. I mean, those townspeople are dumb. Mm-hmm. And minus the one guy that's like, have this book. Everyone is just a, what, what do you call it? What They're we, actually snobs. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> snobs. And, and, and Bell's a snob too. Bell's a snob too. That's right. true. Well, then they never really solved the problem of like, is the whole town just a bunch of jocks under Gaston's control? It sure looks like it when they when he gets the riot or are mm-hmm. there some nice people? Like, does this town just deserve to be burned and thrown into that tre- treasure chest that eats people or not? I don't know. Well, we'll talk about it. But Ben, what baggage did you bring to Beauty and the Beast? Oh, I remember seeing it a lot in my teen years because it's something your sister wanted to watch a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, it was just on. And now, First I, of all, why were you hanging out with my sister? I, I don't know. <laughs> There's lots of good questions about this movie, Nathan. I don't even have a sister. <laughs> you know, your sister as in my sister. Uh, something something my one sister. sister. Yeah, one's sister. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of like Jake said, I didn't, I don't know that I disliked it, but it wasn't a favorite thing to watch. Mm-hmm. Aladdin. Aladdin all the way. I wasn't really a big Lion King fan. So it was like Aladdin. Aladdin was yep. the movie. Yep. Basically. For sure. Yeah. So I don't know what else to say. It was fun to come to it again after 20 years or however long and see it and see how well it held up, which I think it held up pretty well. I haven't gone back like you guys to watch Little Mermaid, which I saw a lot because that was my mom's favorite Disney movie mm. for a long time. Maybe still is. But and so I, I have no idea how that would strike me. We'll have to get you now. your thoughts on record sometime. That'd yeah. be interesting. All right. It did not strike us as anything all that, uh, well, we had our problems with it. Yeah. People can listen to that episode. I agree with you guys. I mean, Aladdin was the coolest movie from that era of our collective childhoods, and that was the one. I mean, Aladdin was the one. Now, my thoughts on how Aladdin holds up are pretty well documented on on this very show, if I'm not mistaken. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in short, it does not. I don't think False. it is a movie that misses a lot of opportunities to actually tell a good story in lieu of Robin Williams comedy, which is fine if that's the sort of thing you like. Am I a snob? Yes. I, I, I'm, am I one of the town's folks in <laughs> <laughs> now? No, it's no wonder that people were like Aladdin. <laughs> it's like got Belle. some action and some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're like Bell. Bell's like, uh, all these. Isn't it amazing? Watching quality cinema, just me. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) There goes Jake Mensel with his Disney movies. (laughs) He has the same taste that he did. (laughs) He thinks Aladdin's great. (laughs) If he had to rate it five stars, that is what he'd give. I like Aladdin a lot too. I haven't seen the whole thing in uh, 20 years. Well, that's the one's next, Ben, and I hope you'll be able to join us for it. Yeah. Uh, My story is that I became the person that I am at a certain point uh, pretty early. And so I pretty early in life decided that Aladdin was, uh, you know, for the plebes. And that I remember as a late teenager or something like that, just happening to hear the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack and really connecting with it like this is a this is a great soundtrack this isn't just some i I said something similar about little mermaid i I don't know it must have been like a cd of ashman and what's his face mencken or something like Mm -hmm. that but i just remember listening to some of those songs and realizing like this is really clever quality stuff and i should go back and watch those again and see what see what they're all about because they might not be something that's just deserves to be relegated to my childhood and Beauty and the Beast was in particular the one that I connected with. And I would still say Beauty and the Beast is probably my favorite Disney movie. I mean, if Disney movie, Disney movie, if you're not including Marvel and Star Wars and all the other stuff that gets branded as Disney these Pixar? days. Disney and Pixar? It might be my favorite. I mean, well, I love Pixar. Uh, this is a bold claim. We'll see if it holds up. But I really like Beauty and the Beast. I think it's a great story. I like the characters. I think Belle and the Beast are actually both really interesting great characters and the comedy and the songs can't be beat and i think gaston is my favorite beauty and the beast villain or (laughs) my very (laughs) even even better than the asylum keeper (laughs) or the foo or Or once again the guy that gets eaten (laughs) by by the 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 chest chest, by the chest chest. Uh, (laughs) i was trying to keep track of how many people actually died in that slapstick (laughs) fight looks like one guy got pretty well crushed by a dresser and when they cut back, his body is just laying there mangled. <laughs> and then another guy got eaten by a chest. So I don't know. I felt a little bad for those towns folks. Uh, they, they didn't know what they were in for. So I think, I mean, I can't put back on the glasses of being a kid. I can't really even put on the back the glasses of rediscovering this movie. It's kind of one of those movies that I've worn out. You know, it is not going to magically inspire the same feelings that it has at various parts of my life. But I still admire it. And when I watch it, I'm just like, this is... This is a really quality piece of pop entertainment, I guess, would be the snobby way of putting it, which we've established I'm capable of doing with these things. I mean, it is the only 2D animated thing ever to be nominated for the Best Picture Hmm. Academy Award. Does anybody know what it lost to? That year, 91. 91, yes. It did not lose to Terminator 2 or (laughs) Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Would, uh... Uh uh-uh. Don't know. Another very iconic movie. A very scary movie. Silence of the Lambs. Absolutely. Silence of the Lambs swept swept that year. 
Huh. Uh, that Science of the Lambs did the whatever the the four effecta, whatever it's called, the best picture, best director, best Anthony Hopkins, and best what's it? <laughs> best Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, that, that should just <laughs> be uh, uh, J- J- uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, what's her name? Jodie Foster. Jodie Foster. Foster. Yeah, yeah, they all they all got the oh. Oscars. So Silence of the Lambs came out early that year, like in February or something like that, and then people still remembered still it. H- held on. Yeah, wow. like so it huh. it really Silence of the Lambs made a huge impression that year and some of the narrative was well we've got this one of the best pieces of family entertainment ever to be produced by anybody and produced by the the greatest producer of family entertainment and then we've got culture being degraded by silence of the lambs and look at old hollywood look at what they're voting for and i'm not even though i sort of said that in a sarcastic tone of voice i'm not really arguing with that (laughs) narrative i think it's actually a pretty accurate narrative but that was kind of one you know the you should probably focus on the family wrote an article or something like that you know that year so here we are uh i guess i can give a little bit more context about beauty and the beast it's part of the disney renaissance everybody knows that we've talked about it a million times it's a huge leap forward from it really Little is Mermaid, in terms of animation visually. quality mm-hmm. yeah. well this is the first movie to really use computer animation and it's even things like computer shading computer coloring so the palette of colors that they were able to draw on and just the work that they were able to save. It's like that very first gorgeous shot after the credits when you're just zooming in on the castle and you're going to see the stained glass windows and everything in it. In, an, in some of the old Disney movies, there's been shots like that. And sometimes the stream will be moving or there'll be a little piece of something moving. But in this, like they were actually able to have the stream moving. The banners on the castle are are blowing. The There's a little animal. I mean, it's, if, you're, if you want to be a jerk, you can still find something that looks like it's a drawing, but it's much more alive and mm-hmm. just much much better i They're, like i really th- think if we're gonna if we're if we are going through this scene by scene i really yeah. think uh that throwback touch of the stained glass the storyteller narrator that sort of homage to the we're opening up the storybook yeah it's great know, mm-hmm. kind of thing that disney used to do and even stylistically it, that those moments they have it's a little reminiscent of the sort of beautiful stylization of sleeping beauty mm-hmm. or something yeah, like that. I was thinking that too. I this is it was just a nice touch. It was nice. The little mermaid broke conventions and opened up underwater and all that sort of thing. And but but this was like we're doing something new that's also old. This is vintage Disney, but you've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. It's really it was a really nice, bold, strong statement out of the gate. Yeah, although I did get a little stuck on this stained glass company made bank. Like <laughs> they made a stained glass window of just his hands, and then another one of his hands turning into beast hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we need every moment from this story uh, made in stained glass. <laughs> yeah, I just figured it was part of the castle's enchantment that you had all those moments in stained glass. Okay, <laughs> you know, because the castle was clearly completely transformed when he was transformed. Yeah, that's true. All the architecture. So, yeah. yeah. Huh. Meredith was actually she she didn't know she she was she didn't remember the movie so she was like now just because the beast got magicked into a beast doesn't mean the castle should be all gothic and I was like just wait they Disney thought of that Meredith my my, my dumb friend uh, yeah the only plot hole she thought she got him but nope. Disney was one step ahead. <laughs> Um, so to the end. a couple of other things that are, there, there's not really much that's all that exciting about this story. This is another one of our, a committee did it and they did a good job <laughs> stories that I like to tell. And I always like to make a big point of, Hey, a lot of good things in Hollywood are actually done by committee. So 
I don't know whether I'm anti-auteur theory or what, but I always like to remind people that lots of people make these movies. We don't have to talk about that too much. The things that are worth noting are the CGI, the fact that this was the first Disney movie ever to have a screenplay that was written. And I think you can really tell, like, this is a movie with characters that weren't just developed to fit into certain iconic scenes or uh like what they what they would do is they would storyboard their movies out that's like how you develop an animated film uh certainly that's the disney process and so to actually have someone i think her name was linda wolverton funnily enough sit down and write a script as part of the beginning of the process was a new step and I think it's probably responsible for some of the depth of characterization and some of the fact that the characterization actually tracks. And like, this huh. is a quantum leap forward, certainly from now Cinderella is in love with the prince. Oh, now this, now, you know, the, those old ones don't try for any kind of three dimensional psychological realism or anything like that. And then yeah. I'd even say this is a big leap forward from certainly all the things we complained about in Little The Little Mermaid, where it just felt like eh, we're not quite striking the balance between some sort of psycholo- nod to psychological realism on the one hand and then the fairy tale hmm. elements. This movie, my argument would be this movie probably strikes that balance in the best and most richest way that Disney's ever done. Uh, Howard Ashman was a executive producer on the movie. He helped develop the story. Actually, he is the lyricist um, with uh, Alan Menken being the composer who's responsible for all these great songs from the Disney Renaissance. They brought those guys in kind of as a Hail Mary, because they developed this whole story not as a musical. For some stupid reason, they decided we're going to go in an even more serious vein. And then Michael Eisner, who was in charge of Disney at the time, was like, guys, The Little Mermaid made us a gazillion dollars. Let's not stray too far from this formula that we've discovered. Let's just give them Disney classics. They scrapped like a whole version of this thing. Brought in Mencken and Ashman. Ashman, actively dying of AIDS at the time, homosexual gentleman, knew he was dying, was desperately working to finish Aladdin, which was his passion project. Like Ashman mm. always wanted to do Aladdin. And they said, we'll pay you whatever you want. We just, we need you to come save this Beauty and the Beast project that we can't quite crack. So he came and quickly before he died, did probably the best and most iconic work of his career. And then died before he even got, he, he did not get to see this movie, nor did he obviously get to see Aladdin, but he completed a bunch of songs that'll probably... Huh live on speaking of the songs it's worth another thing worth noting is that they recorded them live in kind of a broadway style so all the actors actually got together and kind of did it like they were doing a cast Mm -hmm. album for broadway i think it brings some energy and verve to the songs and the way that the performances bounce off of each other and just the the liveliness and again the somebody uh somebody posted in my one of my news feeds just in the last week or two the cast performing this the the movie cast performing this as a broadway act at like the hmm. academy awards that year that's awesome yeah well yeah they were before they did a medley of uh the intro song and then be our guest that's awesome i'll have to look that up robbie benson who cool. played the beast famously taught at iu for about three years from uh, our, our beloved Indiana University in the very town in which we're recording this from, folks. Yeah, they love to bring him back for special things. They like to bring him back. So um, I have never met Robbie Benson or seen Robbie Benson in real life, but it's certainly something that I could have done at multiple occasions. I've seen him at like sometimes he'll sing the national anthem or something at a baseball game if he happens to be around. They they try to make as much use of him as he can when he comes to visit. He's a and he's kind of got long hair and yeah, he's like 
the, he knows what role he's going to be remembered for and <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> doesn't have any shame about it. I think he's gone on to voice the beast and all their, you know, kingdom hearts and or whatever it's called, like all the Disney yeah. knockoff stuff. Beauty and Beast, the Enchanted Castle and yeah, yeah, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. I think he's made his peace with the fact that this, he is the beast. He is the beast. Let's see, we talked about the Academy Awards and the fact that this movie was nominated. And this was before they had the Obnoxious Condescending Best Animated Feature Award. So this movie really <laughs> did have to contend with Silence of the Lambs and whatever the other heavy hitters were, were that year. But unfortunately, the the lovely story of a different beauty and a different beast. Uh, <laughs> Clarice and... Uh, <laughs> Clarice and Hannibal. <laughs> Hannibal Lecter. I guess people liked uh, Stockholm syndrome stories of supposedly strong women that really like monstrous men that year it was just something in the water i guess but this movie was a big hit and it was a big critical hit and i mean aladdin didn't come close to being the critical hit aladdin's arguably uh, not arguably aladdin it was and is a more popular hit because it's got a bunch of comedy and songs that people really like and you know Ben and Jake can tell you all about it, I guess. Oh, oh. The, com- the comedy was groundbreaking for a Disney film. Yeah, yeah. The comedy it felt... Hilarious. It, yeah, it, it's the first time anything like that went meta. Well, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, next time when we do Aladdin. But that is actually one of the grudges that I hold against Aladdin is that there's never been anything that's not Aladdin after that. And going back to Beauty and the Beast, it was so refreshing to not have star voices like nobody, Angela Lansbury, maybe you can recognize, but everybody else just is the character and have the humor all be grounded in the story and not to have to do the ironic kind of meta thing. I mean, Pixar is the one place that you can kind of go for that, but even Disney or even even something like Frozen, I'm so much more, A, the humor is so much more self-conscious and B, I'm so much more self-conscious of it's Adina Mazel and it's uh, Kristen, whatever her face is, and it's Josh Gad. And mm-hmm. it's like the era where Disney was the star and where animation itself was the star, where the story, like, of course kids are going to come see it. We don't need to get Eddie Murphy in there to do a dragon routine. I think it's pretty refreshing. And there may, might just, I mean, by the time we get to even The Lion King, we're going to have Matthew Broderick. We're going to have James Earl Jones. We're going to have Jeremy James Irons. James Earl Jones was, and Jeremy Irons were perfect casting. Yeah, I'm not arguing with it. I wouldn't change any of that, I don't think. And it's not like, every, you know, there's a Nathan Lane fan club that was so happy he got cast as... Timon or something like that, but Whoopi Goldberg, mm-hmm. Cheech Moran. It's yep. like you can name almost all the Jonathan Taylor Thomas. You can just yeah. name uh-huh. all the stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a big difference. And that is the legacy of of oh, Robin right. Williams. Of, it's not Robin Williams' fault. He tried to downplay it as much as possible. Actually, huh. so you don't like Aladdin because it introduced like a like a celebrity thing into animated films that just didn't like necessarily like the firstborn film in the what? Just like he doesn't like the firstborn. Film. To be clear, I like oh, all three born films, I, yeah. and I like Aladdin. I might even love Aladdin. We'll see when I go. We go back to it. It's mm-hmm. just you it's don't, you don't like the consequences. The consequences have been Aladdin. Yeah, bad. The consequences have been a cheapening and a coarsening of. Of cinematic discourse, I dare say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys ready to go through this bad yeah, boy? Let's yeah. go through it. So I think we already covered the opening. What Jake said was absolutely spot on, Jake. Thanks. I approve. Good. It is It is a wonderful fairy tale. It's got that mystical fairy tale music. Yeah, that's a great little theme. What astounds me about this movie, that scene and then the opening number, the bell number, what a masterclass in quick, precise exposition. By the time you get through 
that first scene, you know what the beast wants, you know who he is, you know why he is, you know what the atmosphere is, you know how it's supposed to feel. And then the bell number sets up who Bell is, who Gaston is. I mean, this movie, who LeFou Le is, yep. what the town's like. And ends up with uh, what her dad's like. Yep. Or, yeah. Yep. Crazy old Maurice. Crazy old Maurice. LeFou, I'm afraid I've been thinking. A, a dangerous, dangerous pastime. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a later scene. Yeah, that's a later scene. <laughs> I mean, the elegance. And that's what Mencken and Ashman are so talented. Like, if anybody's ever seen their little shop of horrors, uh, which is a, I think I can say on this podcast, folks, I'm sorry if it has a bunch of bad stuff. I know it's about a, I don't remember it having a man eating plant and stuff. I just remember being ridiculous. Yeah, it's ridiculous. But never saw it. It's fun. The scene, the opening number in that called Downtown or Uptown or something like that, it's so. Great. And it sets up who Rick Moranis is. It sets up who the girl is. It sets up the environment. He shrunk the kids. What's that? He said he shrunk the kids. He did shrink the kids. And then he blew, he's gonna, he's blew gonna, one up. And he's going to do it again. Yeah. Rick I Moranis heard. is shrinking again. For a Disney Plus show. Wow. But those guys are really good at leaning into the advantages of Broadway, which is we can cover a tremendous amount of ground very quickly, setting up not just the characters, but... The environment and the not just the puzzle pieces, but the puzzle itself. Like this is how it feels. This is how it looks. This is the sense of humor. This is the sense of drama. Like this movie does that. I'd say about as effective as any Disney movie. And the thing I kept thinking was, it's a lost art. A lot of times in movies these days, like the first three minutes of your movie are so important. Like you want to set that mm -hmm. whatever the tone is that you want, you can set it, and you can then do a lot of things that don't really like you can. You can do a movie that's almost nothing but comedy, which this movie largely is, but you set that serious fairy tale tone in the first two or three minutes with something that feels really grounded and a kind of old time lore. Oh, almost and epic. Magic. Mm -hmm. Almost epic. Yeah. Uh, something that feels like it's reaching back into the, into history and has that kind of weight to it. It goes a long way. You compare that, say, this is a, this is a mean comparison, but I just happened to have watched uh, <laughs> National Treasure <laughs> the other day, yep. which doesn't deserve to be compared to this. Like, it does National Treasure no favors to be compared to this. Uh, National Treasure is just a fun time at the movies. I understand. I had fun with it. But that movie starts with, like, here's the exposition. Here's the stuff that happened. It's a bunch of stuff. There's no... Nothing elegant about it. There's nothing, nothing elegant. And there's no atmosphere. Like, if you want to... The way to start a National Treasure movie is there's the White House and there's mist around it and there's some secret people meeting and we're just going to feel that for a little bit. We're going to hang with that for a minute. Or even like flashback or seeming flashback to George Washington is actually swapping <laughs> the constant, you know, the Declaration of Independence with a uh, with John Adams and right. Well, that, that actually is... Thomas Jefferson I, pulls something out of a vault and... You do see an, a montage of things like that in the movie. Right. When the, uh, gra the grandpa's like, well, here's, you know, uh, Nicolas Cage. The cages have gone way back and here's something that we remember and here's another thing and here's where the treasure... You see some images and those images could conceivably even be edited with music into something like what we're talking uh -huh. about. Right. Well, I mean, that I've seen National Treasure a few times. Right. <laughs> my, my, my point was... All of that stuff that they just sort of throw in everywhere in a mess actually could have been used to yeah. 
really frame. Well, I think the movie starts with the kid sneaking in an attic or something, and then his grandpa catches him. And all right, let me tell you the real story since you're so eager to know. Just three minutes of a kid sneaking around in an attic would would actually be better than what they did. Like, let that sink in. Let us live with the mystery of exploration and finding things and a flashlight in the dark Mm -hmm. kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. And you have that feeling, then you can put up with a lot of goofy... Um, the real thing to compare National Treasure to is Raiders of the Lost Ark. I was about to say that because uh, me and Meredith are, I guess, on a people violating tombs uh, in movies kick. So we watched Last Crusade. And I was just, of course, thinking the whole time, like, what is National Treasure feels so thin and so silly. And it, you just you have to forgive so much. Last Crusade, really, the conceits are all the same. It's just as ridiculous, but it doesn't feel that way. What's the difference? And the difference is that Spielberg lets it breathe and gives it the right atmosphere. So it feels mysterious and you have time to think, the cross of Coronado, what's what's that? That's that must be really important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was, I think National Treasure Two does start with like a flashback to Lincoln's assassination and dire deeds and conspiracies that happen. Mm-hmm. I think. It's been a long time. Yeah, I've, but I've never seen this. I don't know one. that it works any better. Right. <laughs> for the same reason. It doesn't have time to breathe. Yeah. So well also I, John Williams makes a difference. John Williams does make no a difference. Kidding. But so does yeah. so does Mencken and Yeah, I mean there's so much that you can do to just be like, this is the world. And I think that's actually the most crucial thing you can do in your first three minutes of your movie. I mean, I'm pretty sure whatever the guy that wrote the book on screenwriting, he says like his name is Sid somebody, famous book that most Hollywood people, you know, it's the thing that has like the inciting incident and the this and the that. Well, his thing is first 10 minutes, you need to set up the problem. So we need to know Indiana Jones is after the arc in about 10 minutes. But first three minutes, who cares about the problem? What you're setting up is the world and the atmosphere. And if you miss your opportunity to do that, if you just throw it away or aren't careful about it, then you've really squandered something. And if you think about the movies that are the most effective, they will generally have, I mean, even something like Iron Man, it's like we are in a world of quippy Tony Stark, and we're just going to hard cut to rock music and Tony being Tony. That's like, if there's one thing people are going to take away from this movie, it's Robert Downey Jr.'s awesome. And so (laughs) let's front load that. You think about the difference it would make to Iron Man if we started with, oh no, it's the terrorists and they're setting up a plot and it would change things. I mean, you could argue whether it change, would change things for the worse, but it would change the way the movie felt. You know, any sitcom or any old TV, any TV show, and sometimes they still do, you know, the whole, whether it's Cheers or Saved by the Bell or The Fresh Prince or Sesame Street or Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, it all sets up the atmosphere, the mm-hmm. tone, everything just in the, you know, we're seeing sunny days and we're seeing kids and we're seeing our puppets and we're establishing the world that this is all going to be in just in the opening song. Right. Well, I've been trying to think of a, a counter example and one that's, I think, pretty good is the movie. And we, I think we've talked about this before. The movie Solo starts so quickly. Like it starts, I know they're kind of intentionally doing a thing like Han Solo's always on the run. And so we're jumping right in and there goes the thing speeding across but look, a chase scene, just like at the beginning of every Indiana Jones movie, which should <laughs> remind you subconsciously of Harrison Ford. But now let's think about the Indiana Jones movies. Let's think about all four of them. First movie, five long minutes of a guy and some other guys mysteriously trekking through that jungle past ominous signs with ominous music before we ever get to the action. Second movie, Indiana show tune. Oh, what on earth are we doing here? Indiana Jones saunters in looking like Humphrey Bogart in a white dinner jacket and 
we're going to set up this exotic, where is it? Shanghai or something, this exotic oriental world. And we're going to spend time on that before we ever get to the action. Cafe Obi-Wan. Cafe Obi-Wan. That's right. Part three, we're going to set up the, where are we at the beginning of that movie? The the big Arizona or whatever they are. We're on a trip. On a cla- on a Boy Scout trip. On a Boy Scout trip. Ah, uh, yeah. But we're going to yeah. start with mysterious music, and we're going to look over those barren canyons, and we're going to see some people trekking in that we don't know, and we're going to hear kind of mysterious music. And before we even know it's the Boy Scouts, we know that this is going to be an exciting movie where mysterious, maybe supernatural things are lurking around every co- corner. Fourth movie, we are going to spend five minutes building up to indiana jones entrance and we're gonna have the soviets show up and we're gonna do it we're gonna do a 1950s thing with 1950s cars 1950s music 1950s kids doing a drag race like we're gonna ladle on all this period and then be like all right now indiana jones is in the 50s what do you think about that which you could argue that's a stupid <laughs> conceit but that's the conceit that they were going with and so they spent some time setting it up and i really admire that kinds of craftsmanship and this movie does it perfectly I mean, most Disney movies, I guess, probably do, but... They do a good job, generally. Yeah. Um, I just like... I mean, The Lion King. Sheesh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How does it start? Remind me. I really don't even remember. Ah, that's right. Yeah. That was it? Did you want us to sing? Is that what you were Yeah, really that's what I was for? definitely... It starts with the sun for. rising over the Havana. Over, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I said Havana. <laughs> it starts with the sun <laughs> rising over Cuba. <laughs> Savannah. <laughs> These people are smoking cigars. <laughs> no. <laughs> so it's just that big, bold... Black That's to right. sunrise That's with right. the yep. music and then all the beasts and that whole opening number and everybody's coming to the throne. Uh, and then coming back. And then now. we do we boom. The Lion King. Right. Yeah. Red on black. Yeah, that's right. But you're getting this like right. this is the natural order. These are all the creatures and they're coming you're getting the majesty. Yeah, I mean the song is yeah. from the day we arrived on the planet and blinking stepped into the sun. Yeah. There was more to see than could ever be seen. More to do than can ever um <laughs> It's I mean, far too much to take in here. Well, you, you think about a movie that I have hard, high regard for, Aladdin. It's great. <laughs> it's great, right? It starts with, like, we are doing a straight-up comedy. We are doing comedy like we've never done it before, and it's going to be meta-textual Robin Williams comedy. But we're not going to start like that. We're going to get that in pretty quick, but what we're actually going to start with is a star field and this Arabian exotic yeah. Music that puts us in another world. From a land from a faraway place. Yeah, and then a guy's going to sing about how barbaric everything is and how scary and frightening and big and exciting it is. We're going to establish that. We're going to spend a little time there. And then we'll get to the comedy. And then we'll get to the adventure. But first, we're going to just set you in the world. It's one of the things that I really don't like about a movie that a lot of people like, which is the new Aladdin, is, hey, it's Will Smith on a boat. Great. Like, I feel like they really squandered the opportunity to build some atmosphere. At the beginning of that new Aladdin, <laughs> Jake and Ben are agreeing with me so loudly that I actually had to turn off their microphones. <laughs> they, they can't. They cannot stop clapping right chirp. now, cheering I, me on. Chirp, chirp. I mean, I basically agree. I'm not a fan of the new Aladdin, really. You know, I think it's actually. But Jake fi- is. It's mostly fine, but it is that lack of atmosphere that really bothers me about the new Aladdin. And I think it's a, it's too bad. It's just too bad. That's all. I'm not angry. I'm disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, What do you guys want to say about the bell number? I mean, we've kind of been talking about it already, but it's fun and it's nice. And I love what they do musically. Just that everything from that, that that jaunty little da, 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 da. And then to her, you know, Oh, isn't it amazing? Yeah. That's just really fun. The way that that's all contrasted and woven in and we get guests on through it all. It, 
it's a lot of fun, even if it's everybody just sort of condescendingly looking down at each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this town doesn't. Gaston's the only one that sees any worth in Belle. Right. <laughs> well, she's attractive. Apparently. She's, she's almost as beautiful as him. Yeah. <laughs> I like that song. You know what I don't like? What's that? That the sheep eats a page of her book. <laughs> That's always bugged me since I was a kid. I was like, you love books. Why are you letting that sheep eat, eat the corner of a page of your book? I would never let that happen. Nice old librarian. Apparently the one nice guy in this town who's not a snob gave you this book and then you like it. That bothers me. And the fact that she says she won't discover that it's him until chapter three. Why would you discover what book is this where she solves the central mystery of the plot in chapter three? I know it was a good rhyme, but why not chapter 33? Those things have both bugged me <laughs> since I was a kid. Well, maybe it was... Uh... Hey, that was a whole meta thing that happened in the in in the opening number where she goes through the whole plot of the movie in the book that she's reading. Yeah, but she doesn't discover about this prince yep. in chapter three of this movie, Jake, in chapter three of your DVD or whatever. Chapter three, if it's a three chapter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Until <laughs> act true. three. That wouldn't work as well. <laughs> uh. It's my favorite screenplay because you see, yes, yeah, yeah, I can fix this. Totally works. <laughs> uh, Baston actually also throws her book in the mud. <laughs> yeah, more than once. More. Well, at least once, and then he puts his muddy he boots on it on later. It. Yeah, <laughs> that book really takes a beating. But I don't know, maybe they just lived in a medieval time period and they were used to their books getting dropped in the mud because that's all that was, was everywhere, mud and muck and... Filth. Filth. Slime. Putrescence. Putrescence. <laughs> Uh, what do you guys think of, I guess this is a good time to ask, what do you guys think about Belle as as a princess and as a, a chick and as a character? Well, she comes off at first, I mean, in her song as not just snobbish, but like in a feministy way, like I should be more, I should be allowed to do more. I shouldn't have to live in a small town because that's lame. There must be more than this provincial life. Yeah. And just marrying this dumb oaf from the town. I mean, come on. Yeah. Am I really condemned to like a life like that stupid baker who has to come out with his tray like always? And the dumb lady Same that's, had, that's rolls got to sell. kids squirming all over this. Yeah. I need six eggs. <laughs> that's too expensive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. That's irritating. But the song is so much fun and the movie ends up being pretty sweet. So you forgive. You know, I had points of comparison that made me like it. Number one, the Little Mermaid, Ariel is such a condescending brat for that entire movie. The fact that Belle ultimately is a pretty kind-hearted, decent person who is, you know, going to bind up the beast's wounds and all kinds of things. Well, you see, she'd read the books. Mm -hmm. And because she had read the books, she was able to look past appearances. It wasn't a uh, situation of... Stockholm Syndrome. It was a situation of a well-read young woman who was smart enough and open-minded enough to be able to see past outward. That's absolutely right, Jake. So good job, Belle. And well, since you said the word, which we've already, I've already said, but let's, let's talk about it, I guess. Because the word or the phrase does get thrown around a lot about this movie on the old internet, which is that this is a story of Stockholm Syndrome. True or false, gentlemen, this is a story of Stockholm Syndrome. Well, if you wanted to argue, uh, if you wanted to argue that on the basis that Belle is in fact a prisoner against her own will, who falls in love with her captor over a period of time after having 
taking some abuse from him. And yeah, you can make that case in the broadest strokes. Let me let me make the case even better. This movie tries to be psychologically realistic. These are the most well-drawn characters that Disney's ever had in one of their princess movies. So if you were going to use the old, it's a fairy tale defense, the movie kind of shoots itself in the foot there because it's undermining the it's just a fairy tale no they want to say if a real girl and a real beast found themselves in this situation this Mm -hmm. is about how it would happen the way that they balance that out i think you basically have two two narratives that are maybe fighting in opposition or like dancing with each other Mm -hmm. like a beauty and the beast if you will if you will if you'll go with me there the beast narrative wait a second jake let's our listeners are probably all applauding right now so let's just give them a second to finish up so so i'm gonna i'm gonna go ahead and name one of these narratives the beauty narrative and the Mm -hmm. other narrative the beast narrative okay the beast narrative is the stockholm syndrome narrative right she goes to a forbidden castle she exchanges her life for her father's she's half starved she's abused she eventually comes to love the bad boy and the bad boy applies her with his wealth and his offers her the library all the amenities that being trapped forever in a and imprisoned in a castle away from your loved ones and everybody else that you know could offer so that's that's one that's the beast narrative Mm -hmm. there's the but there's also the beauty narrative which is actually bell is a modern strong woman who has read the stories and knows her stuff and is who she is. And she can stand up to Gaston and she can stand up to the beast and she can stand up and sacrifice herself for her father because she's so smart and so well-read and so open-minded. She can see through what the beast really is to his true colors. And she can she's strong enough that she can affect real change in him through her kindness and her love and her tenderness and her sweetness. But let me just argue for the beast narrative. And her backbone. Isn't that what every young woman thinks when she falls in love with a bad boy? I mean, Jake, as a pastor, haven't you dealt with young women who have run off with dangerous young men or who have thrown away their lives precisely because they believe, oh, I'm strong enough. I've got the backbone, the intelligence, the emotional understanding. I can change this beast into a prince. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So the beauty and the beast. I know what I'm doing. Everybody else is wrong. And stupid. Right. They're I, all just dumb village. I, yeah, everybody's a schmuck in my village that is stupid. Mm. Well, to go on the bells, to argue for the, the bell narrative a little bit, I mean, the pivot point in the relationship in the movie is actually when the beast, you know, sacrifices himself to fight off wolves and then lies in the snow. And Bell could have said, All right, now you die in the snow. Bye. So instead, she voluntarily, in other words, the movie, like plot wise, is empowering her right then. It's like saying, You get to make the choice to carry him back to the castle so he doesn't die in the snow. You could still argue that the movie is propagating a dangerous narrative and also stacking the deck in a way that it's not actually stacked in real life. Well, Mm -hmm. yeah, you can argue actually that it's a dangerous narrative either from the beauty side or the beast side. Because basically what you have is a sort of old school like caricature of... The patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You mean with Gaston or with the the Beast? I mean with the well, Beast. It's you know just both, I suppose. I guess both. <laughs> yeah. Well, the movie actually cleverly makes some space by allowing Gaston to represent everything that we think is stupid about toxic masculinity, <laughs> which right. which actually does allow the Beast to not feel as much like That's that right. because absolutely it's very because clever. we have this caricature of I mean it really is just they didn't have the term then but toxic masculinity. Yeah. I use antlers in all of my decorating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, I, <laughs> I interrupted. Go ahead. 
But still, okay, they, they undermine it with Gaston, but still, you have this caricature on the one hand that, it, you know, you can say it's teaching. Or you have really just a story on the other side of feminist empowerment. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, yeah, dumb women can't change their man. <laughs> but mm-hmm. if you're smart like Belle, if you read the books, and mm-hmm. if you know the difference between a Gaston and a Beast, which... Hey, on the surface, it may not be that much different, but deep down, the discerning woman who's read her books can tell and draw out and through her kindness and courage, bring out the real prince in the beast. That is, after all, what every man needs because every man is a, he's either a beast or he's a beast like Gaston. Right. But- Wait, Jake, are you needs, saying that- He needs the right woman. Hold, hold on. Are you saying that Gaston is actually the, the real beast? Jake. My mind is I'm getting so is being blown right now. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> this is like my coming out party here. This is the this is my my moment to be super profound. Wow. Wow. On this show. Yeah. So even though Gaston looked like what you would think of as a traditional kind of hero, he was the beast. On the inside, whereas the non-traditional hero who looked like a beast on the outside was actually the gentleman. Wow. It's like this parallel reversal kind of thing. That's I know. Hmm. Man, boy, Disney movies. <laughs> You've done it again, Disney. So sophisticated <laughs> <laughs> in their storytelling. Well, I think my my actual argument would probably fall somewhere in between all of these arguments. Yeah, if there's some person out there that reads a bunch of Twilight books and really gets off on the idea that she she can change any man and that bad boys are cool and all that kind of stuff, then I guess the Beauty and the Beast not a good narrative for that person to be too enticed by that being said i think most people when they read or when they approach this fairy tale are not that i don't think that the fairy tale has lasted for hundreds of years simply because it was propagating some sort of toxic masculinity or some sort of patriarchal notion of women needing to sacrifice themselves for monstrous men i think that the story in fact is a pretty relatable i mean most fairy tales i don't think teach us about the, the big decisions we have to make in our lives. They teach us about the prosaic everyday realities of our lives. And the prosaic reality of every marriage ever is that the woman is beautiful and the man is a beast and the man gets tamed a little bit and his rough edges come off. And that's, I think, all this story is actually symbolizing. Like, let's not make it mean more than it needs to. I think every married couple, every dating couple can relate to something in this story without us having to say that the woman's being gaslighted or that the man is horrible. I mean, every every woman needs to learn, well, it's not just about the external things, it's about his heart. Uh, that's not a bad message, you know? The men don't have to learn that though because beauty is a beauty. Yeah, well. That's right. Nothing to, you know, reproach in Belle. Well, the movie tries to make space for that by having her actually be intelligent and smart and kind, unlike all the arguably somewhat attractive ladies around, like those three floozies. They're pretty attractive, I guess, but they're dumb. What's really beautiful about Belle is her mind. Right, that's why it's called Mind and the Beast. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry they didn't change the title, people. (laughs) They did what they could. (laughs) Yeah, Belle doesn't- She's a beauty, but a funny girl, that Belle. Right. She's a funny girl. She doesn't really have to answer, does she, for being, I don't know, rebellious and kind of foolish and first brunette is she the first brunette no snow white yeah snow white's pretty famous snow, snow white's pretty white's famous black hair a little a little earlier yeah well yeah no, she's got black hair she's not a brunette 
You know, maybe it was because I was mentally comparing it to wanting Ariel to get sent to her room the whole time watching that dumb movie mm. and comparing to Emma Watson, who who's like, where maybe can I? All the more feminist. Yeah. Idiot. I'm uh. teaching the people in the village to read and the men don't like that. <laughs> you know, that was const- that sort of thing was constantly on my mind. So I was like, you know, this bell for being stuck in a place and time where she is a little bit smarter than everybody. She's pretty gracious, <laughs> at least about it, compared uh, to like how uh, how Emma Watson wanted to portray well, it. Well, Emma Watson wants to be sure that you hear the scorn in the idea of her being anybody's little wife. Right. His little wife, ugh, is no. basically the tone and tenor of how she does that. That's not this bell. I, I, yeah, I mm. feel like this bell, I don't know. I had sympathy for this bell. I felt like, yeah, of course the movie was stacking it with some 90s feminism, but I felt like basically the story works. It's a woman mm-hmm. who's smart and sharp and has a lot of talent and she wants to meet her match and she's not satisfied with what the town has to offer. And yeah, I've known a lot of proud women that think that they're awesome and they deserve to find something great and they become old spinsters. So you got to be careful with that narrative. But, you know, I've also known people who are just waiting for the right person to come along and somebody that operates on on their level. I mean, why do you guys think I waited till I was 30? I had to find someone smart enough, beautiful enough, capable enough, amazing enough to match me. Oh, yeah. In the world, there was only she. There was, yeah. It was as beautiful as me, Jake, and smart and <laughs> all the rest of it. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like her dissatisfaction, while well, they stacked the deck and they did it cartoonishly, imagine that in a cartoon, it wasn't played as too bratty, at least not compared to it. Maybe, maybe it really was just comparing it to Ariel the whole huh. time, but she loves her dad. She supports him. He's just a goofball idiot. But she doesn't condescend to him. You know, she's mm-hmm. she's a sweet daughter to her dad. She's sweet and feminine, mostly with the, like once once her adventure starts, like once she's in the castle, she's not tying together. Again, I can't help but compare it to Emma Watson. She's not like, I'm not going to cry. I'm going to try and escape. She's like, no, I'm just going to try and do my best. I guess she disobeys the. She does try to escape. Mm-hmm. She does. She she runs away because oh. after after uh, she goes into the West, West wing, wing after he says, don't go in here. And she's like, I'll go right in here right now. Oh, no matter that's what, the West Wing. Let me trick everybody and, 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 go and make to the sure and make sure that I absolutely go to the place that's probably most dangerous and that will make this guy the angriest. So let's do that, and then let's run away because he's so mean. Well, she was terrified, Ben. I know. Yeah, if, I know she was. I know if she my was wife didn't want me to didn't want to be terrified, she shouldn't have provoked me to wrath. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Is that how your marriage works? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an absolutely right. <laughs> and a perfect metaphor for, oh, oh, I don't know. Can I say, I think it's fun that this movie, for all its simplicity, opens up these things to talk about. And it's actually fun to talk about them, unlike Little Mermaid, where you're just like, ugh, why couldn't this mermaid, like... Mermaid. Why couldn't mermaid. this mermaid? Why couldn't this just <laughs> Not be stupid. Not be stupid. Rebellious. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen to her dad. <laughs> care about somebody besides yourself you know i think maybe what i'm saying is the quality helps with those things actually for me because bell feels well-rounded enough that her negative character traits like her rebelliousness feel of a piece with an actual woman that i kind of admire and like and could imagine myself liking in real life i'm not having to make the cognitive leap of oh ariel would be awful to put up with actually but i'm supposed to like her because the movie tells me that i have to this movie is like well you know maybe it wants to wave its magic wand a little bit and say "Ah, it's perfectly okay to disobey things and go into west wings but 
mostly Belle's motivations and the things that she does make decent sense and are sympathetic in the moment, at least. And that goes a long way. Like if you'd done some of that for Ariel, given her some real, like, I, I want to be with this person. I'm not just looking at a bratty teenager. And if you'd done something similar for Ariel's dad, like... I, it actually makes sense for me to discipline my daughter a little bit. I think Little Mermaid could still have all the elements that it has, even the same story beats, but be okay. So that's my argument. Listener, what do you think? Call 1-800-BEAST, and I'm pretty sure that's Jake's phone number, and you can you can weigh in. So we've gotten through... The, he needed to be beastly. 1-800-BEASTLY, yeah, right. yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, now we've got Mer- crazy old Maurice. Crazy. He gets in his thing and he, what's that thing called? His horse, I guess, his carriage. <laughs> wow. Yeah. He's crazy. He's crazy. <laughs> and he, uh, he goes through the woods and gets to the castle and gets captured. What do you guys want to say about that section of the movie? It happened. It did, it did happen. It was great, guys. It was a masterpiece. <laughs> Everything's masterful about this one, I get the sense. This is my favorite Disney movie. I think, I think I've already said that and I'm sticking with it. I, and it's, I like it better than anything Pixar did. And I like it better than all books that people have written. That last part was a lie. But other than, but I think this is my favorite Disney movie. I really like this movie. I don't even know why exactly. I don't know why it resonates so strongly with me. Um, maybe it was because I felt like a beast for so long. No woman understood me. They were all frightened of me. All I had was my friends that hated you. Hated you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Served and enabled your beastly appetites. Yep, yep, yep. Oh, by the way, what a bummer of a, plot hole plug it is in the new Emma Watson one when the castle objects are all like we helped create him and that's why we stick around and help him now like they really they really felt like they had to solve that that that's, problem that's really silly it's like they're just the servants I haven't seen that the new one actually servants are still the servants right yep yeah I mean I think actually that's a pretty nice part of the tale that everyone suffers under the guy who made the mistake is evil or whatever yeah yeah made his mistake his sin his, yeah well you're right ben his sin Nathan. Yes. not a mistake not a mistake <laughs> that's right i, I want to excuse it because i'm an apologist for this <laughs> wonderful piece of entertainment um what i wanted you guys to say about the woods was that it's really scary <laughs> <laughs> and nathan awesome. it's it's scary it's atmospheric it sets up you know the nathan, rest of the movie well it, Every great Disney princess movie has some scary woods in it. Yep. Normally, it's the princess that has to go through them, though. That's true. But for crazy old Maurice going through it, it's a pretty good sequence, and those wolves are scary. Yeah, they are. And Belle gets to go through the scary woods later a couple yeah. times. She does. Yeah. She, does, she doesn't get to... Well, she does get to be scared by them when wolves mm-hmm. try The real her. scene, though, is, Marie, is Maurice's. True. Like, that scene, the scary... Oh, no, we're in a scary woods, and... We're going to have owls looking out of holes in trees. That all belongs to Maurice. Yep. He gets the bats. Yep. He does get the bats. What is the best scary wood sequence in all of Disney? Mm-hmm. I'm going to argue that they actually hit a grand slam the first time out. First time at bat. Snow, Snow White. White. I, I think, think, you might have I think this. that probably is. Even though it's a little bit of a recycle from some shorts before that, I think. Yeah, but all that But it's like weird the abstract. cumulative yeah. pull it all in. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I guess this is a good time to talk about the household objects. Where do you guys think that they rank as far as Disney comic foil creations go? Lumiere and Cogsworth are about as good as they come. Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Yay! Yay! (laughs) 
This movie is so perfect, folks. There's not even that much to say about it besides just, I'm just going to be listing things. And At this point, I'm just kind of afraid of saying anything negative about it. No, you can say something so. negative. Jake, I'm sorry. I've been a beast. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to learn to control my temper. <laughs> you must control your temper. <laughs> <laughs> No, I want to I want to I want to hear anything negative that you have to say. So, what kind of negative things did you want to say, Jake? <laughs> nothing, nothing <laughs> at all. Everything's great. Everything's great and the pr- most perfect movie ever made. Yeah. No, I, what, I don't. Well, what's great next? Well, I guess the guest on number is pretty great. Super fun. That uh, uh, guest on number is pretty great. It is the second in a line of truly great villain numbers Disney piece in a Disney princess movie at least. Mm-hmm. Radigan gets a number and there are little villain numbers in sub-Disney movies. Radigan's number is pretty great, by the way. To Radigan, the world's greatest rat. The world's greatest criminal mind. Radigan. The great mouse detective, my friend. It's been too long. Uh, what's, what's a, what, what is a better villain song? The Ursula, Ursula or yeah, I think probably Ursula takes the cake. I like Be Prepared. I know that people don't think a lot of it, but. I, I like, like be it. prepared. I think I I miss Mencken. I wish he or no, I don't miss Mencken because he was still alive. Uh, Ashman. I, I I miss Ashman. I think his lyrical grace was second to none. I mean, it's the difference between no one plots like Gaston takes cheap shots like Gaston. No one persecutes harmless crackpots like, like Gaston. Gaston. Yeah. <laughs> There's just a wit to that. <laughs> be prepared has a lot of good lines, but. And I, I really like Be Prepared. Don't get me wrong. I'm just trying to put my finger on what I love particularly about the lyrics as done by uh, Ashman. Ashman. Well, yeah. Um, yeah, lyrically, there's no comparison. Yeah. I, I think that's what I'm saying is Ashman was just, he had that ability that the greatest lyricists have to do something really simple. I think he knew when to let the music just do do its work. I, I remember reading something that Stephen Sondheim wrote where he said his mentor, who was Oscar Hammerstein, said... This, the trick to a good lyric is you don't dress it up too much. You don't make it too complicated. You don't say, oh, what a glorious, wonderful morning. That's not a good lyric, but oh, what a beautiful day. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. That is because I'm just going to trust my partner to write music that brings that to life. And so I have to find the thing that's simple, that's inevitable, and also beautiful and also clever. And I think that that's what Ash- Ashman was the king of the clever, tricksy kind of rhymes, rhyme on top of rhyme kind of thing. But I think there was always a simplicity and uh elegance to it there's something like be prepared it's um you know may what's the last line in that our teeth oh our teeth and ambitions are bared are bared it's like nobody would actually say that it's two percent more clever than someone would actually be well nathan would someone actually say persecute harmless crackpot no but you know what i mean don't you listener like i just think there's an elegance to the one and there's a clunkiness to the other and yet i like both of them so you move from Gaston into arguably the most famous number, be our guest, put our service to the test. What do you guys think that ranks as far as Disney songs go? It's really good. Huh? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to rank it. I mean- It is also probably the best Disney song. With what? The last one in Be- that we talked about in Beauty of the Beast. Yes. True. Yeah. What is better, Under the Sea or Be Our Guest? I think that's the real comparison. Or Kuna Matata. Or Friend Like Me. Or happy birthday. <laughs> What's your favorite song of all this? <laughs> um, it's pretty hard to compare those. It's really hard. Well, uh-huh. why don't you rank them for us? One, two, three, go. Um, okay, I'll put Under the Sea on top. 
and then friend like me, and then be our guest, and then Hakuna Matata, and then happy birthday. Okay. <laughs> wow. There you go. Poor Hakuna Matata. Right Poor down Hakuna there with happy, happy birthday. Yeah, I know. Then you're not, you're not a big it. Lion King guy. Not really. Is Hakuna Matata the one, or is it just can't, I guess just can't wait more lines up with the intro. With like, bonjour? With bonjour, yeah. Yeah. This can't wait. It's pretty great. Uh, this is also the section where we really get to know the beast and get to see things from his point of view. Did you guys like the beast? What did you think about? I mean, it was noticeable to me how quickly they pivot from he's a scary beast, he's other, he's whatever, to he's a point of view character that's saying things like, she's being so difficult and yep. talking to his foils and somebody that we're supposed to sim- sympathize with as kind of a neurotic individual that's trying to overcome his own his own demons, his own inner beast. Uh, it was comical. Yeah. It, mean, it, it made you sympathize really quickly. Did they lose beastliness in doing that? Or what are you what are you imagining right now? Are we in the next song or are we at the just like he wants you will join me for dinner. Yeah, I'm that sorry. That's not a request. I think I'm kind of backtracking to before be our guest. There's all that stuff that gets us to be our guest. That's where, what I thought. That's what it's Yeah, sorry. About, I got my chronology a little bit messed up. Where he's knocking on the door, where the servants are trying to tell him like control your temper, be nice, try try being a gentleman. I don't know that it makes him all that sympathetic as much as it makes her sympathetic. It makes you sympathetic to her running away, staying locked in her room. I mean, you do feel like, come on, man, calm. I mean, like the kids in the room are just going to feel like, why can't you calm down and just be nice? Right. Yeah, I remember being kind of scared of it as a kid or it certainly plays more something now. The Beast felt more like a kindred spirit or something now that I'm a grumpy right. person, mm-hmm. but all those scenes kind of felt, had the feeling of this when I was a kid of this like scary, unpredictable, angry authority figure. Like I, like the part where she goes into the West wing, I always used to run out of the room and it wasn't because I was so scared. It was because I just had that awkward, embarrassed feeling of, yeah, I have kids that do that too. A kid that's, hmm. uh, that's interesting. So they have the same hmm. feeling of like, you're not yeah. supposed to be here. You were forbidden. Yeah. Like Ian will run out of the room. You're going to get Abe, in trouble. Abe will also run out of the room. And would you do you think that my read of that is accurate, that it's not, in fact, something scary is going to pop out, but it's you're going to get in trouble? Yeah, kind of yeah I think it is. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense. That's how it feels still. You shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, you don't want to be. You know better than that. You don't want to be there for through the reprimand, even like when he's angry about it. You don't want to see that, actually. Yeah. That is a nice eerie sequence, though. Under, under wolf attack, I said, great scene. Under Asylum, I have Evil Asylum Keeper. That was my note on that one. Kind of thought that guy seemed like a bit of a jerk, that Asylum yeah. Keeper guy. Throw back to Pinocchio. <laughs> oh, that is despicable. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like that guy. We should have seen more. I've of that come guy. to collect your father. <laughs> That guy, by the way, famous. His name is Tony J, the voice actor, and uh, most famous for a great Disney villain in a not that great Disney movie. Deep resonant voice, yet to be made at this point. Come out a few years later. The same team, I think, actually. The movie that took this movie's psychological realism and arguably went a little bit far with it and couldn't quite gel gel it together, and also had some religious and sexual. Oh, overtones. he was he was Frollo. Cardinal Frollo. Yeah. Wow, Hellfire. He's got that great. Yeah, yikes. Song. Yeah, that was scary stuff. Scary yeah, stuff. Demi Moore all dancing in the flames. And Provocatively, yeah, yeah. That's a... I mean, Esmeralda. She's not a Disney princess, right? We're not going to we're no not gonna way. do... Nope. Well, just your Freudian slip there tells you everything you need to know about how adult they managed to 
yep. make that movie. I did not like that movie as a kid. That was one of the first movies I saw in the theater by myself. And so I think I liked it because I had to. Like, because it was an experience of my life. It was a, it was a, what do you call those? A, a point in my life. A, milestone. A milestone, yeah. All right. Or felt like that one at the time. But yeah, man, that movie's weird. I've never wanted to go back to it for a second. I've seen it lots of times. Why? Wow. I, I, what foe? You like it? Because I had little brothers and every Disney movie was something I had to, that, as it came out, something I had to watch lots of times. Huh. You know, if you just assume it's for adults and not for kids, the adult stuff's pretty good. Like that Hellfire number's great. But then you're going to have that and you're going to try and go back to some talking gargoyles named Victor and Hugo. They were not able to mesh their serious adult aspirations onto the Disney formula very well. It's a bridge too far, I think. But I still, some of the individual musical numbers and stuff I really liked like to watch. That's actually, that's also a movie that'll make you miss Ashman because it's got the wonderful Mencken music, but the lyrics aren't quite there. <sighs> My next note is, the beast prepares for the dance, and he says, you look so, so stupid. LOL. That part's funny. Yeah, that was great. Yep. <laughs> He's got braids in his... Before that, Belle gets to play with the singing birds during a song. Yes, a singing bird check. Good. Yep. You didn't let it go, Jake. I'm, gra- I'm glad. Yep. Hashtag let it go, pun unintentional. <laughs> um, we'll get to Frozen one of these days, which I've never seen, by the way. Doesn't I'm, count. I'm keeping myself... Sure. Oh, is it not a Disney princess? No. Nope. Elsa's not a Disney princess? No. Nope. She's like the only Disney character little girls care about. They're not going to make her part she of the princess. She doesn't qualify. She's what do you have to do to qualify? I think the thing that disqualifies her is she's made queen on screen. Oh. So is Belle like, if the movie had gone a little bit, a little bit longer, like once you become queen, you're you're disqualified? I think that is it. I, really? Listen, I she is te- Elsa is technically disqualified. I just don't know from it's a so business Anna standpoint from- why you'd not make them part of the lineup mulan's in there right oh what about uh megara or what whatever megara 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 i've never seen oh hercules, uh, hercules either i don't think she counts because she's not she's just not a princess i don't think like at all she's just okay a lady yeah the requirements are the character must be human or human-like enough so ariel they fudge her in nala not so much though she must have a primary role in an animated disney pixar film she must not have been introduced in a sequel she must have been born royal, married royal, or or have performed an act of heroism. She must have an animal companion. She must have an animal companion. Yep. And to throw in one more requirement, she must not be the leader or ruler at any point during her first film. Presumably, when the choir is singing and everything's ending, she can be the ruler and the leader. Then. Yeah, but Anna's actually made queen pretty, early on. Pretty early on, pretty sure. Or maybe, I, I don't know. So l- let me just see what this article says, because this article actually gives some commentary about, I don't know, there are rules. The rules seem pretty capricious, and most people really come down to saying it's just marketing. Yeah, I'm sure that, that a couple of those rules were made to either kick one person out or make sure that one person, I'm thinking maybe Mulan, gets got in. in. Like, yeah, this person doesn't really how do qualify, keep, but she's How do we a, keep this terrible movie character out? Right. And how do we, like, we need to make sure Nala's not in there because it doesn't make any sense for Nala, even though it does actually make sense for Nala to be in there. And how do we make sure someone like Mulan, who I don't think is technically any kind of royalty, but is still a pretty famous Disney babe, Mm -hmm. makes it in. Weird. Well, uh, where were we? These look stupid. They dance. It's great. Computer animation. Anything to say about any of that stuff? Uh, Fun fact, that was Angela Lansbury's one and only take of the song. She said, it's not really my range. It's not really my thing. 
don't make me do it. They said, ah, just do one for us. She did it. And they were all in tears and they said, we're going to use that and we're going to win an Oscar for it. And of course they did. So good job them. And good job, Angela Lansbury, uh, deigning to do the thing that would become your signature and that you'll <laughs> probably the only thing you'll be remembered for after the last murder she wrote fan dies. Oh, forgive me. Your cameo in Mary Poppins Returns is also. Bitten up some broomsticks, man. I've never seen it. I did like that one a lot as a kid. I, 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 I liked it. I'll watch it kid. sometime. I'll give it a shot on Disney Plus. I mean, it recycles some animation and it plays on some Mary Poppins stuff. It's basically just like another Mary Poppins movie, except without Julie Andrews and Angela Lansbury is somehow not as charming. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought in that cameo in Mary Poppins <laughs> Returns. Shock. Well, after I finished the Apple Dumpling Gang Returns and Sammy the Way Out Seal, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> all those great movies no. <laughs> on Disney Plus, maybe I'll get to Bed Knobs and Burnt Six. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, man, the Shaggy DA. So many good things you can watch. Actually, I don't know if they have the Shaggy DA up, up, but they certainly should. Nah. All right. So I am opening up the entire second act, guys, for discussion. Sweet. You got, you got the Beauty and the Beast number. You got the... All the stuff with them falling in love somewhere, something there that wasn't there before. You got Be Our Guest still on the table to talk about. What are your thoughts? Oh, before I forget, I cannot stand the fact of how little we actually see her eat during Be Our Guest. Oh, yeah, I know. All this awesome food goes by and she like barely seems to taste anything. Right. And then she's supposed to be satisfied at the end. Yeah. Uh, it's like, I am a little hungry. All right, let's put on a show. We do nothing. We'll have some food just <laughs> dance by you. <laughs> I think that whole number should be, wait, <laughs> no, stop, come back. <laughs> that is the other, there's two things since I was a little kid that have bothered me about that movie. And we did have that movie on VHS and wear it out. I hate the fact that the sheep eats her precious book. And I hate the fact that she only gets maybe two fingerfuls of food during <laughs> Be Our Guest. But be that as it may, second act, open for discussion. Take it away, boys. Well, Beast is a pretty cool Disney prince. I mean, yeah, pretty, does, pretty fun. How does he rate as far as Disney princes go? I don't know how you rate the others. I I don't, don't remember being that impressed with Eric from Little Mermaid. Well, he's a huge step forward from, I mean, you go from Snow White. The guy in Snow White's a zero. He's nothing. Yeah. I don't remember him at all. He has that song, one love, I have but one love. But he really is. Huh. He's just the equivalent of, he's like male arm candy. I mean, he just shows up as the archetypal prince, nothing to him. Oh. Yeah, and then the prince in uh, in Cinderella also kind of same story. Same story. Okay. How will I know you? I don't even know your name. Like that's like his one line. Huh. You know. He's How got, will I find you? He's got a handful of lines. The movie just, I mean, does not feel the need to. Like this movie's not about the prince. He's this out there, otherly thing, and they keep him that way. Right. And they do the same sort of thing with the princesses for the most part early on in focus on the side characters. And now we see everything sort of zooming in to focus on the prince and the princess. Let the side characters just be, you know. And you're saying that started especially with Little Mermaid. Yeah, yeah, it did. I mean, if you think of Cinderella, it's the mice, it's the, it's all that stuff. Oh yeah. Uh, with Snow White, it's the dwarves. Even in Sleeping Beauty, you get a little bit more with- Philip. With Philip and with, with Briar Rose or- uh, Aurora. Aurora. But it's really the fairy fairy godmothers. I mean, Philip, I think on the podcast, Jake, we've said he's been our favorite prince so far because he has the deep character trait of having a sarcastic relationship with his horse. Right. And then you come to Eric and Ariel, and you do get more with Eric. Yeah, but he's still surprisingly thin. 
Then yeah, let's put he's it this just way. like he like dances and he sings and he play or doesn't sing. He plays his flute or penny whistle or whatever it is, and he has a great relationship with Matt. He's got to go back and he's got save like more Max. things, so more got, more he's accoutrements. He's going to dive in and kill Ursula. Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to throw the spear. He's going to get in the ship. But he still doesn't do have a character. Things. I mean, he just has more he has stuff. A sarcastic relationship with Grimsby. But that's again, he's not much better than Philip in terms. No, of he's not in terms who of who he actually is. That's right, because all the same things are true of Philip. Philip has a sarcastic relationship and slash sweet relationship with his animal and with his father. Right, and he's going to jump in and save the day and fight the bad guy. And so. Which is fine, but this is the this is the first time. Well, I mean, this is the first time a, a Disney prince and a Disney princess didn't fall in love simply because destiny told them they had to. Actually, well, this is the first time our prince has any kind of story. Right, we're seeing things from his point of view. He has a redemptive arc. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. that's never nothing like that's ever happened before in a Disney princess movie. The prince is just always the prince, and he doesn't need any redemption from anything. The princess needs saving. She doesn't necessarily need redemption either. In this movie? No. Oh, you mean I in mean, general? Just in oh, general. Oh, yeah. Right. Okay. Snow White's perfect. The prince is perfect. Aurora is perfect. Philip's <laughs> perfect. Belle is, in fact, Cinderella. In some sense, also perfect, right? Belle is, is perfect. In the agent of redemption, right? right? Yeah. Like she always she was did... the kind of person that was kind hearted and saw beyond external realities. And in the end, she was still that. Yay. <laughs> Ariel's a brat, but she doesn't actually get humbled like we don't really feel like ariel learned a lesson we feel like man if dad would have just been cool we could have avoided this whole thing yeah no ariel's like the story of emma if mr knightley wasn't in it and she just kept being emma and yeah and jane austen said she should get everything she wants okay (laughs) (laughs) great (laughs) (sighs) if fathers never reprimanded their daughters right bet you on land the bell is that bright young woman whose father never reprimanded her. And she turned out great. And she turned out great, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Maurice was a disciplinarian early on before he mellowed out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> Just extrapolating here. <laughs> My daughter? Odd? <laughs> yeah. He seems like... <laughs> He's yeah. really aware of... Context clues, Context friend. clues, yeah. <laughs> sure. His, his first invention was a spanking machine, I'm sure. That Gaston's a handsome fellow. <laughs> wow. yeah. Maurice is the CEO of the Awareness Committee. <laughs> oh, Crazy old Maurice. <laughs> yeah, I think the beast great, and they're going to make fun of him when he has his hair in curlers, and yeah. we're going to have his... He's going to make fun of himself. He's going to make fun of himself. He's going to... He's going to just be a sympathetic, well-rounded character. He's really fleshed out, or should I say furred out, I guess. Um, It's like he's just waiting for an excuse to not live in a temper tantrum or something. Yeah, I mean, I think the the story they're trying to tell, at least the best spin I can put on it, is this guy actually basically learned his lesson when the witch turned him into a beast. But But he's been depressed and angry. He's been depressed and angry, but he's- Despairing ever since. And he's like, well, who could ever love me? I'm just- I'm my punishment is forever. That sucks. And then, and therefore I'm going to self-sabotage. Right. But he actually knows even at the beginning of the movie that he should be kind, that he should like, he's going to grow into the person that he already is in some way, which is how he's able to transform so quickly. Mm-hmm. I guess. I mean, that's, that's the best spin I can put on it. Cause he does do an about face <laughs> yeah, he does. pretty quickly. Well, Ben, you were commenting this movie felt very fast to you. Yeah. Yeah. Not when I was a kid, but when I watched it last night, it's like, wow. 
This is an efficient movie the whole way through. Not an ounce of fat on it. Not an ounce of fat, and it's over before you know it. Yeah. Well, the time, it's really fun to try and speculate about what exactly the time frame is that they're telling, because it feels like Belle and the Beast spend a winter together falling in love or something like that. That whole montage seems to spend a lot of time. But then Gaston, all in one day, tries to marry Belle gets depressed, comes up with an even evil plan. That very night gets the evil asylum guy. Maurice is jer- starts journeying to the castle that very night, like the night that Belle first ventures out of her room is the night that I think Maurice goes after her. Yeah. And yet he's going to be stuck in the woods all winter, I guess. Maybe he just couldn't find his way to the castle. I don't think you're supposed to ask these questions, but mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I kind of like to think that crazy old Maurice was just wandering in the woods for a really, really long <laughs> for time. For all winter while Belle was running around throwing snowballs. <laughs> uh, I like all the uh, the montage. The, the love montage is sweet when he learns to... He, he has to eat his porridge in a nice way and then she bends to him and she's going to drink her porridge with him. And <laughs> I like when they're dancing and she puts her head on his chest and all the little side characters are going, yeah, you're, you're doing it. And the beast has this grin on his face like, I'm, I'm pulling this off. This is great. <laughs> oh, that was all pretty sweet. Yeah, it is sweet. And it was relatable in a way that like Cinderella you're never going to see Cinderella, you know, her head on the prince's chest and then the prince look around like, I can't believe I'm pulling this off. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You might see some animals or little friends cheering them on. That that's, goes all the way back to the very beginning. But mm-hmm. now some people have argued, here's an argument maybe we can deal with. Some people have argued that this movie is actually bad. I've seen this argument. I don't remember where. That, come on, guys, is neurosis and modern psychological problems actually what you want from a Disney movie at all? Like, isn't what you signed up for a fairy tale with stock fairy tale characters? Isn't that what was great about classic Disney? Like, Walt Disney's instinct was not to flesh these characters out. And so, yay, you're getting to see the kind of drama that you see on, you know, your average boring, stupid TV show. Yay, the Beast and Belle are just as dumb and stupid and complex as human beings. Great. Why didn't the Grimm brothers think of that? Well, there really is something to be said for that early tactic of leaving your hero and heroine flat so that every little girl and every little boy can imagine themselves very easily as being Prince Philip or Princess Aurora or Luke Skywalker. Or We've talked about this argument all the time in all kinds of different movies that get that criti- in defense of the movies that get criticized for having flat characterization. So I think that there's, it's a legitimate question to ask. The, is there something lost here because we have such well-developed characters? And I think maybe part of why, here's my defense for what Disney did. One, it was a fun risk to take to go that direction, to breathe new life into this world and genre. Two, in 1991 versus in 1930 whatever. There were a million, but how many Disney films were there by the time that, that this movie came out? I think this is number 30 in the animated classics line. Okay. So at a certain point, you got to, one, you have to do something fresh and two, it's worth having going some very specific routes and it's just a different world. It's not the world of this is our one animated shot at, to try to capture a universal. Well, it's kind of like hero and hero. You, you mentioned Luke Skywalker. I don't know that we'd want trilogy after star wars trilogy that just had a young nobody 
Right. Like at a certain point, okay, we've lived in this world long enough. Let's flesh it out. Let's see what some specific kinds of people would be like. And the, th- the fact is that any specific kind of person is somebody that you can empathize with, actually. And the more rich the characterization, yeah, there are things about them that, you know, you don't, you like, you don't like, you get, you don't get that are like you and not like you. But well, especially know. an animated character, I think, can stand in can naturally do the kind of thing you're because they're animated it's like bell already is every woman simply by virtue of being something that was drawn that represents woman rather than being an actress that is a specific kind of person and the beast is every beast simply by not being a prosthetic makeup or cgi he's he's, he's just he is beast he is iconic in that way and so mm-hmm. it can have some of the quality that some of that every man quality but it can also have more specificity to it. And I don't know, as an adult, maybe, I don't know if, for kids, but as an adult, I certainly have more fun watching this one than I do the ones that are like Snow White, so simplistic that there's just not actually a lot there besides those really exciting moments or the really funny moments. Like this movie, the the boring stuff is actually pretty good mm-hmm. where that's not really the case in, in a lot of them. Well, and The Beast is also like, it's the dark side of masculinity in some sense, mm-hmm. right? In a fairy tale, that's true in a fairy tale too. And the question is, it's already there. Are you going to bother to tap into it and shade it in a little in a way that's sympathetic or not? I, I think as soon as you choose this fairy tale for a Disney movie, you have to answer that question. Yeah. It seems like a good departure point for this will be a more fleshed out character. You almost have to. I mean, can you imagine, like, could the old Disney have actually done this story? The story itself introduces huh. enough ambiguities that I would argue you, I, I think this argument holds. Tell me if it doesn't. It seems like the story is natu- naturally introduces enough ambiguity that you kind of have to lean in somehow. You mm. can't just let them be two-dimensional icons because it'll actually open up more of those Stockholm Syndrome kind of questions if you do that. Sounds right to me. I'm trying to imagine like a Sleeping Beauty style or Snow White style Beauty and the Beast. Well, what if you just didn't get to spend any time with the Beast? I mean, what if he was just this primal other creature and she just needed to see into his eyes and have a magical moment where she realized... Doesn't work. Yeah. No. I mean, that is how the old Disney, I think, I don't know how the old Disney would have done it. Probably they would have realized, oh, we have to shade this in. Well, uh, if you... I mean, Disney's nothing if not smart yeah, about the sorts of well, things. Well, it may be one of the reasons he didn't, just didn't do this one. Well, yeah, I was just thinking of reading Grim, Grimm's Brothers fairy tales as a kid, which I, I had a big book of them and I read them over and over. Yeah. And if you, they're so flat, and that's not a criticism of them, actually. They're so flat and weird. And so there's so little like internal anything in anyone. It's just, it's like you have to relate to it as a different world. And I I, I can't even remember what the old Beauty and the Beast is like. Maybe you do, Nathan. The actual Grimm's Grimm's fairy tale version. Because what happens? I don't don't know that Grimm's actually did a version of it. Um, Well, is it someone else's? Yeah, it was like a French guy. It is, I think, a French fairy tale that we can actually trace back. There are precedents and things that are similar to it in other cultures, but- a guy named, uh, I believe, Charles Pernod. I don't know. I didn't look up all the Beauty and the Beast lore. Um, what was the question? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to think back to how I related to those stories as a kid. Well, I mean, I'll tell you how I related to it. When I read Grimm's, I loved it. Yeah. But I also found it pretty challenging and bothersome, precisely because of these moral conundrums. Like, we're just going to invite the witch to our wedding and then we're going to make her dance in red hot shoes until she dies. That's what happens in Grimm's version of Snow White. That's like, did they set her up so that they could torture her? Why did they have to? Tr- like, I always wanted to ask all these questions that the, did, was Snow White watching as her her stepmother danced herself to death with red hot shoes? Was was this like, like, I always, 
the the lack of ambiguity, the the hard straight lines, I always sort of clashed with with Grimm's brothers. It's precisely what makes them feel so exotic and yeah, strange and that's kind right. of creepy sometimes. There's an awful lot of slaughter. Yeah. In those in those fairy tales. And it's like if you're a witch, then we can capture you and then we can have you torn apart by wild animals. Like we don't have to worry about cruel and unusual punishments. The the more cruel and unusual the better because witches really need to die. And so do all bad guys and that's just one example of the kind of weird like I I don't I don't think Grimm's did do Beauty and the Beast, but they did stories where young ladies were up against rough characters uh, and they needed to figure out these rough characters were actually the princes. And the Grimm's don't apologize for those characters just treating them terribly. Right. Or punishing them in some sort of way where you're supposed to just be okay with once you figure out it's the prince. And it works It works in the Grimm's brothers. It, it's like you said, it's not a criticism. It's just a description of, yeah. of what they're doing. It's right. It's kind of exotic and challenging right. and, and weird. And that's part of the fun of it. Yeah. But I don't know that Disney could... Or would want to. You don't really want to see a movie of it like that. that. Yeah. No. <sighs> Let's talk about Act Three, which comes really quick, much quicker than I remembered. The Beast is like, "Hey, you want to? I've got a magic mirror, which, by the way, I've been using to spy on you. So I hope that's in cool. your bedroom. In your bedroom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is the part that felt the most like. Okay, as much as I like this movie, <laughs> if we're going to pretend like these characters have any psychological depth, there's no apologizing for that. I'm just glad she was dressed. Yuck. I wonder when else he did that. But anyway, the less said about that, the better. He gives her her magic mirror. She goes to get her dad. Gaston's like, I'm a psychopath now. Oh, by the way, I also love the... Comp- it's not that he's a complex character, but I, I, Gaston is m- my favorite Disney villain. He's one of the aspects that I really like about this movie. And I just like the fact that he's plausibly a comedic foil at the beginning. He's not... The movie doesn't say, villain, villain, villain. You know, for all we know, there could be a dragon or a, a much more a beast in a castle yeah or, for, or a beast in a castle for example yeah but we don't know who the villain's gonna be and then it's like oh it's just this jerk it's just this this is jock that whose <laughs> ego was wounded and he's gonna let it let it turn him into a psychopath different life gaston still would have been a jerk but he wouldn't have been a psychopath you know i mean if he gets what he wants then he just settles down and has it and maybe he's you know a jerk to his wife but gaston's not going out of his way to be evil he's just an egotistical jerk that thinks he deserves what he wants and he lets himself get carried away and you know uh turns into a real jerk (laughs) and then falls into uh falls off a cliff and dies and his mangled corpse is down there still falls off a tower falls off a tower and dies i mean even then it's plausible that gaston could have just went whimpering away but he just he gave in to his his anger his his pride and oh well by the way gaston's original death i think i said this on another podcast was conceived as he falls, he survives, and he gets eaten by the wolves. Uh, really? Which is pretty great, I, didn't I think. Know that. It, it actually makes sense. We're going to have the the wolves are going to affect things in all three acts. There's a nice symmetry yep. to it and a nice The wolves run them to the castle, the wolves affect the turn of relationship and the wolves Fun, devour finish the off bad the villain. Guys. Yeah. <laughs> pretty great, but for obvious reasons, I think Disney Disney actually has decided to recycle that ending. The same thing happens to Scar. Poor, poor Scar. Um, so that's an idea that was sitting in the hopper for a few years. And hey, we can have this character get eaten alive. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and Hopper, by the way, could have been a pun on another Disney character that gets eaten alive, which is the bad guy in A Bug's Life. So I forgot about that. There you go. All these associations. Uh, I just saw it. Hopper from Stranger Things. Yeah, he doesn't get eaten alive, I hope. I don't know. By a Demogorgon. 
how many people do you guys figure died in that final battle? I wasn't paying attention. I think it really it might have been only Gaston because even the guy who gets eaten by the chest was probably let out. Yeah. Probably. That's how I feel. You don't think he it's was like, digested when the chest burped? No, not really. That makes me feel a little bit better. Does it? I felt a little bit bad. See, these are the this is why I can't read fairy tales because I take <laughs> ask these kinds of stupid questions. I'm like, oh no, they're murdering all these people. Well <laughs> but, hey, it's not murder if it's war. That's right. Yeah. They were defending their home. That's true. They were yeah. within their rights. It was yeah. like a, a home invasion yep, kind yep. of story. They yeah. broke into their home <laughs> with pitchforks and torches and swords and spears and weapons and crap. Yep. Yep. I remember as a kid, always looking forward to that fight. It had some of the best gags, maybe of any Disney fight. Maybe, yeah. maybe the best, but especially when the guys go into the kitchen after the poor, whimpering puppy dog. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Cushion Ottoman thing, Ottoman pops thing, yeah. up and the knives pop out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the uh, the cook with the flame, <laughs> the flames. <laughs> That's great. That it's, got that it's terrifying. Cross dressing thing that happens. Yeah, which yeah. the new one decided to lean into, uh, make the guy be like, uh oh. But uh, it's funny to think that within our lifetimes, you could have it be a joke. Like people would have a sense of humor. <laughs> of course, the guy's terrified. He got turned into a woman. How embarrassing! And uh, Cogsworth actually gets. Saves Lumiere. That was a nice touch that I forgot about. Yeah. Like a rare, like (laughs) Chip's actually going to, or Lance is actually going to save Chip kind (laughs) of like we're going to abandon the logic of Lumiere always has to comedically end up on top. Pretty fun. You get a nice little point of view shot of the, of the, the end of that dagger. Yep. That's pretty great. (laughs) (laughs) Scissors actually. Was this scissors? Yeah. Oh, awesome. That's a great, um. (laughs) I always, also as a kid, the one, the thing that I always thought was funny, like I would laugh at it, is the fact that the characters talk in rhyme when Gaston says, take whatever booty you can find, but remember, the, the beast, beast is mine. mine. I always <laughs> just thought it was like, the song's over, Gaston. You don't have to t- talk like that anymore. <laughs> and uh, Angela Lansbury says something else in rhyme, I forget, but it's just yeah, like- Yeah, little things like that. Yeah. When, when, when life gets heightened and dramatic things are happening, you start talking in rhyme. And Shakespeare does it. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a there's a good the the Bible a does good it. Good theatrical precedent for it. I mean, Adam did it when Eve came. Uh, there's there's precedent all the way to the beginning. We even get a Shakespeare reference in Gaston's song. Through your stir storage to the cricking post. Yes, Gaston, that unread guy who has you know how he can even read it. It doesn't have pictures. Screw your courage to the sticking post. Good job, Gaston. You, you've got a secret life that nobody knows about. <laughs> You're like me. You were the jock that sort of secretly had Aww. to hide his love of Shakespeare. Wow. You know, I said Gaston Jesus. was a great villain. This is even better. He's actually secretly in love with Belle. Like he can't admit it to LeFou or anyone. He's in love with anyone. her mind. He can't, he can't break character. He's cultivated this image with all these stupid townspeople, right. right? Who only prize machismo. And so he like, leans into the machismo. Right, he understands Public, in this but, system that he needs to come out on top. and Yeah, he's just really smart about it all. Mm-hmm. But secretly, you know, he's he's a poet at heart. I so mean, like when he's like, Bell, <laughs> books are stupid. His heart, <laughs> his heart is breaking on the inside. Yeah. He's like, this is prob- probably, given how she's been conditioned by society, she wants me to kind of make fun of her book. Like that's what men do, but. Yeah, she, I mean. She she wants five strapping young lads like me, even if she won't admit it. Like, <sighs> poor Gaston. And then know. he's like, my lovely, Gosh, beautiful flower is being a, me has been Stockholm syndromed by this this beast. And of course, he's justly angry because I mean, 
one, come on. It's like he's a specimen of a man in every way, including mentally. Mm -hmm. And you've got this sort of like thing, weirdness going on in the Stockholm syndrome. And it's all gross. He's just like, man, I got to protect my woman. Crazy old Maurice. It runs in the family. Like, I got to protect this woman. Mm -hmm. I got to kill this beast. I have to break whatever spell he has put over her. You know, this is insane. She's in love with a hideous monster. She's uh, she's under some kind of weird spell or yeah, crazy runs in the family. I'm going to go take care of business. So he wasn't bragging when he said, did you honestly think she could love you when she had someone like me? <laughs> no. <laughs> like I his mean, heart was breaking. Yeah. Like what? I mean, I don't know. I, I think Gaston's a little self-deprecating even in those moments. Like even like the, you know, as beautiful as me, you know. Some she, yeah. Is as beautiful as me. I think he's sort of like, he like he's like leaning into it. It's like he's probably been, everybody's been like, oh, you're so handsome. You're so handsome. And he just sort of like bashfully leans into it. And you're right. There, there is a metatextual a quality. And iron. You, how can you decorate with that many antlers? <laughs> how can you be that good at expectorating? <laughs> Which he is especially good at, I'm told. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah, like I think, I think. I'm especially good at expectorating is is exactly Gaston flexing his self-deprecating humor and his wit. Like who says expectorating? The great ironist. Like Gaston. <laughs> he if he's the as dumb as the townspeople think he is, he doesn't have a vocabulary like that. He knows about barges. He's roughly, he's as roughly large the as, size of the size one. Of one. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> this has been turned on its head. Yeah. Wow. Gaston. This is a, the tragedy. Let me tell you. Have the you tra- ever heard the tale? <laughs> the, the tragedy of Gaston. The wise. <laughs> uh, it's not a tale that Disney likes to tell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> From my point of view, the beast is evil. <laughs> then you are truly lost. <laughs> well, another misunderstood jock. <laughs> The world is full of them. Um, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, that's one reading of the movie. It's the reading I approve of. I kind of like that beast. And <laughs> ah, I'm with the beast. Yeah, I'm with the beast. Did you honestly think she could love you? <laughs> I like it when Gaston's hair comes down. It gives him a nice psycho look without... And then he gets the, the little curl. curl it back over his ear. Yeah. That final battle is awesome. Like, not the slaps. The slapstick battle is fun for kids, but the the final them chasing each other around the castle and it's the lightning pretty great. and everything is pretty great. How does the live he action one the... compare? The live action one has, I don't remember it very well, but it's got one thing that I really don't like, which is he's standing on a parapet or something, and he's he's done his last evil deed, and then the parapet just collapses. Maybe he gets hit by lightning or something, and he falls, which isn't nearly as good as his undoing being... He's about to stab him again? Well, in the movie, he stabs the beast, and the beast doesn't even mean to kill him. He just reacts in pain, and Gaston goes plummeting. It's like he he was hoisted on his own Mm -hmm. murderous petard. That's right. But And I think he does something similar in the new one, but Gaston's actually one of the high points of the new one. Yeah, I think Gaston's great in the new one, too. Yeah, he's played by Luke Evans, who played uh, the bowman and the, the hobbit. And he's a real singer, unlike Emma Watson, and you can definitely tell. I like the new one, generally. I guess we should address this. We're not going to do a special episode. You like the new one, Jake? I think maybe we could do the new one behind the paywall or something. Okay. Well, I take it back, folks. Don't remember what I said, because I'm not, because you need to go behind the paywall to find out what I think about the new one. I think we can do the new Cinderella back there, too. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that, folks. So sign up for Patreon today.
patreon.com forward slash sanity at the movies get us to 100 bucks and we'll do the indiana jones movies on this side of the paywall which will be fun <sighs> we're only 35 dollars away yeah we're, we're pretty close so uh and thank you for everyone who signed up so far i hope you're enjoying your clone wars reviews and things like that and i hope you'll enjoy your cinderella and your beauty and the beast which will come soon yeah Gaston's great in the new one though i've already let that cat out of the bag I think the new one has one problem and it's one of the central characters but i won't tell you which one now what else is there to say about the well like okay there is a big question we still have to talk about what do you guys think about the prince like i think the the, the accepted wisdom on this movie is it sucks when the beast turns into the prince like everybody's disappointed like that's who she's gonna end up with he Light looks weird out of his fingertips and heel <laughs> yeah i don't like that as a kid that that's another thing as a kid, like tips in his toes and his heel. I had a dream once where my fingernails were scooped out with a spoon and I just had these holes where all my fingernails were. It was really weird. And so I don't like, like sometimes my wife will try and cut my fingernails and it just gives me kind of a nails on chalkboard kind of like I, I, I have a thing about fingernails. And so when that light shoots out of his fingers, it's just, it like makes me really squeamish. I don't, I don't know. It always has since the youngest age. I've never liked looking at it. I don't know why. Ugh. If there's anyone out there that agrees with me or knows, has any clue what I'm talking about, please let me know because I'd love to have a comrade in this. Because <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not expecting you guys to agree, but I've just, this is an entirely personal thing. I don't like the light coming out of his fingers. I don't like, and then it comes out of his heel, which is also weird. It's pretty weird. weird. And his toes, which is like, no movie should ever have toes. People should wear socks. Feet are disgusting. We don't need to see them. Not any of them. Not Belle's feet. I'm sorry. Not a foot guy. Now, what do you think about the prince? Uh, Gaston's a better looking guy. He's manly. The beast is all, the beast prince is all. He looks kind of feminine. <clears throat> Pretty feminine. Well, his face is like a Botticelli or something. It's. Yeah. It's 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 a weird looking face. It's a, it is just weird. Looking. It's like distractingly weird. Yeah. yeah they should have. It's like they didn't spend any time on it. They needed to actually, they wanted the contrast, like she fell in love with the beast and <laughs> she got a handsome prince and I get that, but what they actually needed to do was make him more gruff and like he didn't just need to be not effeminate, he actively needed to be kind of gruff looking, like he needed to have some of the recognizable beastishness, I think he needed broader, he had decently broad shoulders, but he needed he needed a thicker frame, he needed more hair maybe I don't, I don't know just give him a beard yeah give him i think a beard would have gone a long way actually like make him i don't know that he needs to look like robinson crusoe or something but actually that would be a pretty cool look if he just looked like a disheveled guy that could be handsome and then they could clean him up for the big dance at the end but yeah that moment never quite lands when she says it is you and we as the audience are kind of like well i guess he's got the same blue eyes but we don't feel it the same way i'm that always like well, you saw his body get lifted up and light shooting out of his fingertips and toes <laughs> and him spin around and be transformed before your eyes. What what made you think that this wasn't him? Like <laughs> You make a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy? <laughs> it's probably Gaston. He, he runs to me and says Bell like he's <laughs> like he knows me. Uh anything else you guys want to say about the ending of the movie or the final dance or Anything like that? Anything, um, old old Lumiere and Cogsworth at it again. Those guys. Yeah. Even at, at the end of the movie, they're still at odds in a humorous fashion. Chip asks if he has to sleep in the still cabinet sleep in anymore. in the cupboard. You know, Chip, I actively didn't like Flounder. He was a zero of a character. Chip, as far as like the young boy character, is probably the best one we've seen in our Disney princess things so far. I don't know that we there's actually anyone else to compare him to besides Flounder. 
but Chip was a good flounder, and flounder was a bad flounder. Really, flounder was a bad Chip. Fun fact, Chip McGregory named after... No, that's not true. Nope. Anything else to say about this movie? I don't think so. I love it! I like this one. I don't know if people have been picking out on this. Uh, on this. this is one of my favorite movies, honestly. I really like it a lot. I think it's really well done and quite entertaining, and it still holds up after all these years, and the music is the best of any Disney music, I think. And I'm sorry that Mr. Rankin died because he probably had still had a lot of cool stuff in him. Or no, Mr. Rankin didn't die. I always get that confused, Mr. Ashman. Ben, your final thoughts? Like it a lot. There you go. There you go. Where would you rank it in the pantheon of the Renaissance? Well, I, it's, I haven't done any of these episodes with you guys, and I don't even remember what's, what's in the Renaissance. So, so this, Aladdin, Lion King. Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid. This, Aladdin, Lion King, and then I think we'll just extend it through Pocahontas. Pocahontas? Yeah. Ooh, Pocahontas can go on the bottom. <laughs> I, thought, I was, just, I was scared that. for a second and a half there when you said, ooh, <laughs> I know what my favorite is. I mean, I... Th- uh, it it might still be Aladdin, which I haven't seen in forever in a day. So I don't know if it's fair for me even to give a ranking. But well, just go go with your heart, Ben. If there's one thing Disney has taught me, it's that you need. To I go should with go with my heart. heart. Okay, I think I'll put this one over Aladdin for now, actually, because I have the most recent fond memories of it. There you go. And then I'll put Aladdin under this, and then I don't know, probably Lion King. There you go, Jake. Same question. Which Disney Renaissance movies are the best? How do you rank how, how do you rank them? And I realize we're doing this a little early, but. I asked the question, so... I'm going to go with just what I think I would have... I'm going to side with Childhood Me. Childhood You. Childhood Me says Aladdin, Lion King, Beauty and the Beast. By the way, Childhood Nathan agrees 100%. I don't know where he became a man. I put away childish things, but... Except, eh, we're talking about kids' movies here. <laughs> you make a fair point. <laughs> that are for kids. That are for kids, yeah. And so I think that is why I'm going to go with my childhood ranking. I think that's completely fair. I, I, I would argue that on an objective level, this one does more things right. This is a better movie. But I, but I, but I would never in a million years try to convince a kid of that. Like, obviously, Aladdin's the best because it's got a flying carpet and swords and snakes and stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, it's awesome. There is no arguing with that. And I fully admit that. And I anticipate liking Aladdin better than I think snobby 20-year-old Nathan would have liked it. I think I went through my period of like, well, come on, guys. Actually, this isn't that great. And hopefully now I can come back around and embrace it. Fall under the same hypnotic spell that everyone else in the world seems to have fallen under. But for now, I'm going to say Beauty and the Beast, Lion King, Aladdin, and all the rest. And the rest. Marianne, the professor, and the rest. Yay. Yay. All right, Ben, thank you for being here. We should say ben, Ben's here. Ben, <laughs> after a while, Ben's been a said, while. Ben, no pun intended. Ben, I hope will be here more, but he might not be here all the time. But I'd love for him to at least come back for Aladdin because I, I know he's going to have stuff he wants to say about that. That'd be fun. And it won't do to have the rock and the hard place that are Jake and me or, or whatever it is. And that's not what I wanted. The the immovable yeah. f- object and the irresistible force. Yeah, yeah. On Aladdin, so yep. you can come break the tie in Aladdin's favor, maybe. Nice. And come to um, I think it'll just be a love fest, folks. I like Aladdin. I like it fine. It's good. You know, if you want comedy, you could, you'd be better for you to watch Aladdin than Beauty and the Beast. If you want adventure, it might be better. If you want quality, then make your own choice. Uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> Sanity at the Movies, of course, produced by me, executive produced by Jake and me, performed by Jake, me, and Ben. And go to patreon.com forward slash Sanity at the Movies. Sign up. All those good things. Until next time. Be our guest. <laughs>